Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in this global world right now. I'm so excited to introduce my guest to you. His name is Jeffrey A. Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin, who is the founder of the transformative technology space, serial, entre- serial entrepreneur and social scientist who researches personal transformation and the states of greatest human well-being. Jeffrey has spent the last 10 years conducting the largest international study on persistent non-symbolic experience, PNSE. I can't wait to find out more about that or as it's publicly known, fundamental well-being. Since 2008, Jeffrey has worked to bring together the stakeholders from academia, technology, business, finance, and public policy to create a sustainable technology space that dramatically improves human well-being. Jeffrey is a best-selling author and award-winning educator, co-authored or co-edited over 20 books and numerous other publications. His work has regularly been featured at leading academic conferences worldwide, as well as major public forums, such as Deepak Chopra's Sages and Scientists, Symposium Wisdom 2.0, the Science and Non-Duality Conference, the Asia Consciousness Festival, and TEDx. He has been covered in media as diverse as the South China Morning Post and PBS's Closer to Truth and been an invited speaker at many top universities, including Harvard, Yale, University of London, Hong Kong Polytechnic University, and the National University of Singapore. Jeffrey's academic work lies at the intersection of technology, psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience, and transformative studies. His research on non-symbolic consciousness began while he was a graduate student in transformative studies at CIIS, I hope I said that correctly, and psychology at Harvard. He also holds a Master of Science degrees in information technology, and management. He's the founding director of the Center for the Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness, a research professor and director of Transformative Technology Lab. Prior to his current affiliation with Stanford University, he was a distinguished university professor, William James Professor of Consciousness, and Dean of Research at Sophia University. He holds a number of additional appointments across a variety of institutions worldwide and serves on many advisory boards. This is his story and this is his passion. Dr. Jeffrey Martin, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so honored to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I've got, a, I've got so many questions and we were talking before we started recording that, you know, it's funny when you're passionate about something, it doesn't necessarily feel like work, but do you mind just giving the audience a very brief background of how you got to where you are today or the pivotal moments in your life? Absolutely. I'll shortcut that because I've done a ton of stuff, but yes, whatever (laughs) comes to you. Starting about 15 years ago, uh, I had had a, a very successful run really in business and technology and media and things like that. Uh, but I really wasn't as happy as I saw some other people being. Now, I wasn't miserable or, you know, 
depressed or anything like that. But I just felt like there were clearly people that were happier than me. They didn't seem to be working as hard as I was. Uh, I felt like I'd done everything that I was supposed to do that society had told me I should do to be one of the you know happiest and most fulfilled people out there. And I was feeling a little lied to about all of that. I'd taken all kinds of courses and done a lot of self-improvement stuff and it moved the needle a little bit, but clearly there was a whole other level out, whole other level out there that I just wasn't touching. And so I just chose to really start down a very different path for my life. And I basically unwound myself from my various businesses and went back to school uh, to get the level of training that I would really need to do the research on, went out to find the world's happiest people and see if I could join them. And every, I mean, look, one, of the, one of the fundamental reasons, we, I think we all search for happiness. And I guess that was part of your search. And this is a long topic, but in your studies, how does one be happy? What I learned is that there are really two kinds of happiness. There's the traditional kind of happiness that is really, you know, everybody knows about it. When the average person thinks about happiness, this is what they think about. They think, I want to be happy. And that's happiness version one. Let's just call it that for purposes of this interview. Um, so all of the psychology field basically studies that. Now, of course, most of the psychology field studies people that have something wrong with them psychologically, right? But the percentage of people that are into the positive psychology stuff and things like that, they actually, you know, they're talking about a very different form of happiness. And I would say well-being is a better word than happiness than I'm talking about. And so there's a, it, there wound up being this whole second type of well-being, a whole other level of well-being. And it had been hinted at for years in religious and spiritual systems with words like enlightenment to non-duality and you know, unitive consciousness, God consciousness, the sacred heart of Jesus, the peace that passeth understanding. We've got over 200, close to 300 of these terms cataloged at this point all around the world, basically pointing to this, but it also had been uncovered in modernity by uh, people like William James, who had done research on it around the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. um, very famous psychologist uh, from really one of the first ones in America uh, from Harvard. In fact, the psychology building, when you go to Harvard and you take psychology, the psychology building is named the William James building. Okay. Um, and so he's pretty foundational. Um, and then more recently, about 50 years ago or so, Abraham Maslow, which is one of the other psychologists. There aren't very many psychologists that people know about. You know, They've maybe heard about Freud or Maslow, uh, but there aren't that many more. Maybe B.F. Skinner, if they heard a little bit about behaviorism or something, but psychology is not one of those fields that has a ton of famous people in it, aside from TV personalities like Dr. Phil or something. Uh, and so one thing that's interesting is that Abraham Maslow is one of those people who a lot of people know about. And he actually spent a good chunk of his life on the trail of this other form of well-being, and he achieved it in the couple of years prior to his death. He died in 1970, I think June 6, 1970, which was six days before I was born. Um, and he really was in this, he'd finally sort of made it. He'd finally sort of experienced it personally, but unfortunately he was so sick 
during those final years of his life with a heart condition that he wasn't really able to get it out there and to get the knowledge of it out there. He founded a whole new branch of psychology called transpersonal psychology to study it, but he wasn't really around to guide the development of that branch of psychology and it didn't really wind up going that far. Um, and so this is something that has actually been well known. I really feel like we came along like 50 years later or 40 years later and kind of picked up the mantle from Abraham Maslow, where he left off accidentally, really, because I wasn't aware of this part of his work. It's kind of a hidden part of his work, unless you sort of luck into it. Uh, now more is known about it because there's a lot of awareness being raised about the sort of other type of human well-being that's possible. And so people are finding stuff like Abe Maslow's old stuff and digging it out and publishing stuff about it. But, you know, if you go back 15 years or so when we started this, that wasn't happening. So that's the story, basically. There's these two different types of well-being. Now, one of them is fundamentally rooted in our animal nature. The default one is really rooted in our animal nature. And so if you can, if you can think about sitting outside and at a cafe and a bird lands near your table and you have a little bread on your table and you maybe you know, break off a little crumb and you toss it to the bird and the bird, you know, what does it do? It pecks at the crumb, right? But does it savor the crumb? Does it just sort of, you know, like we would a nice brownie sundae or some sort of tasty dessert? Does it just sort of sit back with its eyes rolling back in its head and say, no, it doesn't, right? It immediately starts looking around for threats that might kill it, right? And then when it's convinced that it's safe to take another peck of that crumb, it takes another peck and then it immediately starts looking around for what's gonna kill it. Well, that is exactly what all animals do. And although humans don't like to think of themselves as animals, we are animals. At a fundamental nature, we're wired neurologically just like every other animal is. And every animal is out there in every moment with the survival loop playing that ultimately puts at the core of them sort of a sense of discontentment, a sense, okay, something is not right. You better look around right now because, you know, something may be about to eat you, right? Now, we don't have to worry about things eating us in most cases today. We don't worry about, I'm not worried about a gunman busting into the studio here, you know, where I'm at or anything like that. Um, so we leave rel live relatively safe lives. And what's happened is our nervous system is mapped on the other aspects of our daily life to things like that. So, you know, we're, we associate stresses at work and in our career, uh, things seem life-threatening that shouldn't really be seen as life-threatening, right? I mean, if your spouse comes home and says, I'm leaving you and I'm taking the kids, I'm taking all the money, you know, that feels like you've been shot. But of yeah. course, you haven't been shot. There's like tons more money out there. Uh, you're not going to probably get blocked from seeing your kids. Uh, you know, there's another however many billion potential spouses uh, that are waiting <laughs> to meet you. That's right? a great and attitude. So, but in our own minds, right, it feels like somebody shot you with a gun. And that's, that happens for all kinds of things in our life. And it's because these older parts of our nervous system have kind of been shanghaied um, into the modern environment. And we're not scared about an animal ripping our arm off in the next minute and looking around nervously for that. But we're constantly in our minds dwelling over the nervousness around, oh, how am I doing at work? What does that person think of me? Oh, I hope that did they really say that about me? But oh my God, that's horrible. Right. And it, it's just like this endless loop that mostly plays in people's heads. And so there's a lot of fundamental discontentment at the, in the moment. Now, the 
people like positive psychology departments and researchers and stuff like that, they have worked really, really hard to figure out how to help people be as happy as they can while still having that fundamental discontentment. And so that's sort of well-being version number one. And we've learned that things like meaningful relationships, you know, meaningful work and meaning in general in your life, health is very important. Uh, they, they have a laundry list of a handful of things basically that are what make someone traditionally happier than they are right now or have more well-being in their life, to use a more accurate term. Uh, than they have at the moment. If they'll just, if people will just apply themselves, if they'll just do gratitude exercises, if they'll just, you know, journal, if they just do all of these different exercises, uh, they can in fact improve the baseline of their happiness. Well, on the other side of the coin is something, pardon? This is version two. Is version two. Yeah. It's something completely. I want version two. (laughs) I, yeah. I don't want to lose version two. (laughs) I set out on a quest for version two. I'm pretty darn happy. The best decision I ever made. Uh, And so version two is really interesting because what happens is kind of a fundamental rewiring in the brain between a couple of key major brain networks and the net output of that is instead of feeling a moment-to-moment sense of fundamental discontentment, you feel a moment-to-moment sense uh, that, things are, that things are fundamentally okay. Now, that doesn't make you non-functional, right? If someone bursts in with a gun and you're not like, oh, look, a gun, everything is fine. Oh, a bullet coming out of the barrel. Oh, it's so nice. You're a funny guy, Jeffrey. Right? And so, you know, you're able to, you're probably more able to act in that situation and, you know, than the average person who's going to have all kinds of fear loops playing in their head and all sorts of disaster scenarios that the voice in their head is telling them in that moment. Uh, Whereas you're probably going to not have any of that. You're going to be sort of able to take clear headed action and get yourself and hopefully some others, you know, to safety. And so when I say that it feels like everything is fine in the moment, I don't mean that to imply any sort of dysfunction. In fact, it leads to the opposite. But what happens is because our brain is basically built up in layers, when you change that foundation to be like fundamentally okay, instead of fundamental discontentment, that ripples all the way up through the rest of your experience. And so you wind up feeling okay yourself. You wind up feeling like you don't need to add anything to yourself, like you're fine exactly as you are. You really feel like the weight of the world has been lifted off your shoulder. You feel very at peace. Now, the life circumstances around you haven't changed one bit, right? The only thing that's happened is you could still be in bankruptcy. Your spouse could still be leaving you with the kids and threatening you, right? Uh, You could still have lost your career to some malicious boss or something, right? I mean, whatever your worst case negative scenario is that you can imagine, right? That can still be going on. And I'm not saying that you won't feel something from that, right? Because there will be some, for most people that experience this, there will be some emotional turbulence and whatnot, but that'll fall off much more rapidly than it otherwise would when it appears. And even when that turbulence is there, there's a kind of, you know, impossible to understand how it could exist, uh, sense of peace underneath everything, a sense that fundamentally somehow everything is okay, even though logically that makes no sense. You know, your life might be falling to pieces. There's, there's like, how in the world can everything be okay? But nonetheless, your bedrock is that things are fundamentally okay. And the level of well-being that is produced by that is beyond a normal human's imagination, frankly. 
You explained that so well, first of all. Thank you very much. I really get that because I believe I'm already I'm already on version two. And I and obviously you're the expert, but I'm just going to say I did this through repetition and practice. And of I, what? Of what? Oh, God, you're an excellent question. You're the psychologist. Um, <laughs> um, by removing uh, negative thoughts, that everything is not going to be okay and coming to the 100% belief that everything is okay. I always say it's like you almost have to believe it 100%. You can't, do, well, if the old-fashioned CD, right, if you wanted to burn a CD, it had to be 100%. You can't burn a CD, even 99%. It has to be 100%. So constantly believing 100% that everything is okay, that everything's going to work out for you. Uh, positive visualisation, well-being, you know, holistically eating well, exercising. Um, and I guess that that repetition, it gets a lot easier. It's like anything. If you want to be a, a runner, a fantastic runner or an athlete, you have to train at it. And I yeah, kind of live my life like program that now. Like that. I don't know yeah. if, if that's your answer. Then. No, you can totally program it in like that. I think that's that's a long, hard road oftentimes that is not suited for everybody for sure but it can totally work. I'll tell you another one that's related. The easy to that, way is good as well. I would have liked you to speak yeah, to you before, the easy but the easy way. So much better, right? Yes, please. I have a, there's a friend of mine who is one of the world's great neuroscientists. I'm not going to say who it is just because I don't think he'd want this story to be public. Um, okay. But he actually got there in a really interesting way. Wow. Um, he, he basically noticed that every time he had a thought, his voice box moved, his vocal cords would have some sort of energy. And so he started to pay attention to his voice box. Instead of you know trying to quiet the voice in his head or reprogram the voice in his head to be happy or his emotional life to be happy or whatever, he's like, okay, all of that seems to be related to this one physiological thing. Like every time any of that's present, my voice box is moving. So what if I can just get my voice box to not move? when I'm not actually talking out loud. And through that, he was actually able to transition to this. So, I mean, the way that people get to this is fascinating. There's so many different ways. We have just a zillion different ways cataloged at this point. That's really, so is it when he's actually talking out loud or the thoughts that are in his head? His, just he in his head, yeah, yeah. And another friend, somebody who worked in our lab for a while, um, a great engineer in Silicon Valley, um, he had actually worked on this problem for NASA, but to use it as a benefit. And they were uh, putting electrodes that measure these movements of muscle on people's necks to try to control spacecrafts. So that, you know, if you're in a spacecraft, you didn't have to use a joystick and you didn't have to speak out loud. You could just think, you know, fire thruster in your head. And because your vocal cords move a little bit, just as if you were trying to say it, uh, it could decode the pattern, basically, and all you needed were a couple of electrodes kind of stuck on your neck. So it's interesting. It's interesting stuff. So how, so I'm assuming you got to version two in a, with a simple method and after lots of research? I did. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> you, I actually put off getting there for a long time. Yeah, we I like to sure suffer sometimes, to don't we? <laughs> yeah, right. And I, I felt like I wasn't sure I could complete the research. Um, after I'd met a lot of people in, in sort of version two, um, I, they, you know, they seem, what, ha what seemed to happen is there seemed to be many different kinds of version two. Um, and so what, ha what would happen is sort of people would sort of land in a, in a version of this. 
and a version of version two, right? yeah, and I let's say it. a type of version two, so it's a little clear. Uh, so they would land in a type of version two well-being, right? And um, they would sort of become convinced that that was like it, you know? And if you had another version of version two well-being, they would be sort of like, well, you know, that person is really, really close to the pinnacle of well-being, but they're just not quite there, right? Because yours, and of course, if I asked you, you would be like, oh yeah, I know about that other person, what they're saying, yeah, yeah, it's just not quite there. You know, they're mm -hmm. almost there. And so there was all this disagreement and kind of all this bias about, you know, my version of version two is better than this other person's version of version two, which if you know anything about the spiritual marketplace, explains a lot about all the fighting among the different teachers and stuff like that, yes. right? Um, and the differences between groups, because different groups have picked different types, you know, Christianity really likes type three, for instance, you know, Neo-Advaita, Advaita Vedanta likes type four, um, you know, and so on and so forth, right? And so uh, you have all of these sort of, now that we've cataloged them, it's very easy for us to see what's going on, right? Because it gives us a map of the territory, but early on, we didn't have that kind of a map. And it just seemed like, wow, you know, people wind up just super biased, what's going on here. And I felt like I could not complete the research being one of them because I would probably land someplace and think that place was the best place. And then I would start saying, this place is the best place. And at that point, you're not an impartial researcher anymore. So I waited a number of years actually, uh, longer than I would have had to. Uh, before I transitioned. I didn't really allow myself to transition until I was pretty convinced that I could get hit by a bus and the research would just sort of keep going on without me. And I figured, you know, if I can get hit by a bus and things will keep going on, then if I lose it and I start, you know, going, hey, this is the right kind, all that other stuff I said before was totally wrong. You got to throw out all that old research. I figured people could just kind of push me into a corner and be like, yeah, you know, Back in the good old days, Jeffrey was a good researcher, but now it's just best to not pay any attention to him. So, we're, we're continuing on the work and just, you know, pat him on the head every now and then. And fortunately that didn't happen because I also was able to last long enough that uh, I learned that what you need to build in are sort of external uh, self-referential systems. And so, you know, you'd have to really be able to take feedback from your environment, take feedback from other people, really get it and understand these biases that occur so that, so that they don't affect you. So are you able to explain simply how to reach the optimum level of number two? Yeah, you know, that's what we had to eventually. So for the first, I want to say six or seven years of the project, we were mostly dealing with people who were already there. Uh, but eventually the day came when we started to think, okay, how can we measure someone before, during, and after? Because we did a lot of stuff like EEG and, you know, other, we partnered with other people that did fMRI this is and other types of neuroscience research, right? Uh, and so, you know, every scientist is going to want before and after data, right, sooner or later. Mm -hmm. And so that first period of years was really to help us get to the types. And then once we understood the types and once we had a good understanding of what we were looking at, it, could, it allowed us to design experiments. Uh, and then we, once we could design experiments, then it was time to say, okay, let's try to get some before and after data. And that's a standard practice from a neuroscience standpoint. A, a really a pioneering new area of neuroscience is going to take at least two or three years to even try to figure out what an experiment might be in something like an fMRI scanner. And five or six years is really not terribly uncommon. Uh, and so, because it's, you know, you just have no idea, right? So you're really sort of building it all and your understanding of it all from scratch and then trying to figure out how you can probe it. 
so basically, after about six, seven years or so, uh, we started really trying to figure out, okay, well, what is it that we can do to really shift people? And I originally thought that we would do it with technology, with brain zapping technology of some kind or neurofeedback of some kind. And we do use uh, brain zapping stuff today in the lab. That's kind of the cutting edge of all of this. It's not publicly available before you ask. Um, okay. And so there isn't a button yet. And there You're now predicting my questions, are you? Five or 10 years, right? <laughs> right. But it's coming. Um, so the other side is, uh, once we realized there wasn't, this was, you know, 2010 or something, uh, once we realized that there wasn't going to be, uh, actually later than that, once we realized that there wasn't going to be a button, a technological intervention for at least a decade, uh, then we started thinking, okay, well, what else can we do now? We of course knew more or less all the stuff that was going on all around the world, right? We had this huge project, thousands of research subjects all over the world. I mean, it's not like there was some hidden method that was out there working that we didn't know about. This is so, uh, so exciting. We, wow. And so, <laughs> so we knew that, you know, we knew that there was nothing that we could use that really existed to transition people with any degree of reliability. And it's expensive. If you do fMRI work, it's like at least 2,500 bucks, $3,000 a subject. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, you can't have a lot of your subjects come in and take half of that money and then not be able to come back because they didn't get there. That's just a recipe for bankruptcy of a project, not scientific progress, right? Yeah. So it turned out that there was this line on one of our intake forms that asked what worked for you. Uh, and I had not, because I know that the population was so biased, I just assumed that there wasn't going to be any meaningful data in that line. And we never really got around to analyzing it. Uh, and, and we have a lot of data that remains unanalyzed. We've collected an enormous amount of data, but there's only so many hours in the day, you know? Uh, and so I had a research assistant go back and that person basically combed through all of those responses. And it turned out that there was a relatively small number of methods that had actually worked for people. And then to top it off, many people had used more than one of those methods and only had one of them work for them. And so what sort of started to become clear was, okay, you need a, you need a list of sort of the best you know, possible candidates, the things that are most likely to work for someone. And you're talking about a success rate of like two or 3% or something like that, you know, for a lot of these tra traditional methods, you know, which is very low. I mean, those are like the rock star methods, right? Like the handful of methods that like rule the earth in terms of transitioning people, you know, they might be able to get two or 3% uh, of people to there, right? And so what became obvious to us is that it's basically a, uh, a matching problem that you have these different methods and they all work uh, to, you know, let's say there's, you know, we have, I think, you know, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 30 methods uh, that we would consider really great methods. Um, and so, you know, let's say there's 20, right? And so you take 20 methods and you think, you know, if each of those 20 methods works for maybe two or 3% of people, or maybe there's a real standout that works for 4% of people or something, right? Um, if you run enough people through that, through those methods, people should be able to find, you know, a certain percentage of people should be able to find a method that works for them. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to just like go and randomly search the internet and be like, I'm going to try this form of mantra meditation out of, you know, a hundred thousand other forms of mantra meditation, like I'm going to pick this one and I'm going to practice this, uh, you know, your odds are almost infinitesimal, right? That you're going to transition from that. Uh, but 
If you then tried, if you try, if you know which mantra method transitions the most people, right, that's a real help. And so if you have sort of the category best for that, you have the category best for noting, you have the category best for awareness practices and focusing practices and all of these different types of things, then you can basically just systematically step your way through them. And, you know, it turns out that you only need about a week of practicing an hour a day to be able to tell if a method is in sync with you. And if it is in sync with you, it's probably going to transition you within a week or two. And so it's, it's really fundamentally more than anything else, a matching problem, which I think is why we see more people transitioning since around 1996 in our data than uh, you know, before that in terms of our population statistics, because that was the time when you started to have a certain amount of information density on the internet. You started to have these practices be much easier to find. Imagine if you were in you know, 12th century Europe and you know, you've basically had two forms of Christian practice that were available to you, but only if you were a, in a monastery mm -hmm. and only if you were in the right kind of monastery on top of like, your odds of transitioning to this as a Christian in the 12th century or the 13th century is like non-existent. Uh, it's so low, right? Um, and so now you have a much better chance at it because there's a lot more methods and stuff like that that are known about. At least you're not stuck with knowing only maybe one method. Um, and so we basically came up with a protocol, a research protocol that over four months stepped people through a whole bunch of these different uh, methods. And it wound up having about a 70% success rate. And so 70% of people that went through and just iterated through all of these different methods um, wound up transitioning. And then earlier this year when COVID hit, we were doing the brain zapping thing. I was doing it uh, in Iowa, actually, and you know, sort of at a university over there, and because um, they had the right population. And then COVID hits, right? And it's like, okay, can't be around people sticking, you know, giant ultrasound transducers on their heads anymore yeah. and zapping their brains. So I went to one of my houses is in uh, Peoria, Illinois, where I was born. Uh, so I basically just drove two and a half hours from Iowa to Peoria, and I hunkered down at a, this beautiful place on the river uh, in Peoria. Uh, and after a few days, I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, well, it doesn't seem like this COVID thing is going away anytime soon. So what can we use this period of time for? Now, that previous protocol, we had... Um, about the first 10 sessions or so of that protocol actually transitioned 60% out of that 70% of people. So I'd always kind of had in the back of my mind, like making a shorter protocol using just that and just sort of seeing how it went. That would have been about eight weeks of uh, practices. And I also knew from a lot of the research that we'd been doing because it's really hard to get people to do a four month experiment. So we'd been doing a lot of research trying to figure out how long, what are people really willing to tolerate? you know, in larger numbers. And it seemed like six weeks was about it. And so I thought, okay, how can I cram that eight weeks down into six weeks? And so we basically made a six week protocol that we put out there and that had a 65% success rate. And then we created a second six weeks that somebody can take after that if they're not successful. And that got our success rate up to 80%. Uh, and so, you know, we've had a lot of luck with this matching. And so, you know, the answer to your question is really, uh, a three-part thing, right? First, people really have to find the best methods that they can to try out. Then they have to try them out for a week 
um, for at least an hour in a single block every single day of that week to get a sense of whether or not they're going to work for them. They can tell if it's going to work for them or not, not by miraculous things that are happening to them while they're meditating or whatever practice they're using, but by whether or not their life is getting better outside of meditation. Are they seeing their reactivity reduced? You know, do they seem to just sort of be happier, uh, starting to get happier outside? of the meditation itself. Uh, are they having moments that might match some of the things that we talk about? You can go to nonsymbolic.org to see some of our research and stuff for more on that. But basically like, you know, it's the sense of that shift, you know, are they starting to see some of the clues to that shift away from discontentment in every moment to more of a fundamental okayness? in every moment. We don't have time for those clues uh, today, but basically those are the types of things that you're looking for, right? And then if you don't, you have to basically drop that method, find another one, start trying it. It's a matching game. This whole thing is a matching game. When you find the thing that works for you, it'll work for you very, very rapidly. Now, one additional caveat to that is that something might work to take you part of the way there, but not all the way there. So it might like really be moving you in the direction of this fundamental well-being type stuff, um, but it might stop you just a little short or something, right? And your tendency is going to be to just double down on that method that got you almost all the way there. Uh, that is not what you should be doing. Um, you should be continuing to practice for another couple weeks at the most, maybe three weeks at the very, very, very most. But if it doesn't kick back in, if that method doesn't start producing the progress that it was producing before, then you need to switch methods. And most people don't, right? Because they spent their whole life looking for some method that just worked a little bit for them. And so what happens is they wind up like grabbing onto these methods, like super tight, you know, and like not wanting to let them go. And unfortunately, these methods that can spiral you up when you reach their stopping point and you keep using them, they will often spiral you right back down. And so it's about what methods are matched to you in this moment. That method is no longer matched to you. It took you as far as it can take you. It's not going to take you any further. So you have to find the next one that will. And then you begin, you know, just chunking your way through methods again, one after another, after another. It's easy to know what the best methods are because they've mostly risen to the top over the centuries. Right. And so if you just think about, you know, what have become the the most absolute popular practices in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Christianity, uh, in Judaism, which has its own mystical branch. Right. Islam, Sufis, all of that. Right. If you look across these, you'll see that there that there some are unique, but there's also a lot of commonalities. Uh, and you can start to see, okay, well, geez, people probably wouldn't have been using these for the last 1,200 years if it, would, if it didn't work, at least to some degree. Now, it's going to be a little different than what we do. We, we have taken those methods, and then we have sort of tweaked them based on modern brain science to get to the level of success that we have, because a lot of those things were developed a long time ago, and you know, we just understand more about people in the brain now. But they're good enough. You know, They're good enough to use, and there's all kinds of information out there. Yes. And as you're talking about this, what comes to mind is meditation or prayer or belief Absolutely. in a higher source or God. Some of some of those techniques I'm assuming you would incorporate into your methodology. Yeah, ours is secular, so we don't need the higher power uh, stuff. We don't use that in there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that actually is a method. Um, when I was at school in uh, Cambridge, basically in Boston, they had, I, you were able to take like one non-psychology class. And so I took world religions 
uh, and I got this assignment from uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. You were like, you know, every week you did something different. One week was like Sutra week, right? And so they would give out the sutra and you had to translate it and try to figure out what the heck it meant. And I wound up getting the part in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras where they were talking about um, the importance early on of adopting the stance of a higher power, of there being a higher power. And then the importance later on of dropping that belief but how it's like a very useful stepping stone uh, for people in terms of their progress in that system, which is targeting a very specific type, of course, of this version two uh, type of well-being. If you were in Christianity, right, you would keep the higher power stuff uh, close to your heart because uh, they target a different version of this, a different type of this version two of well-being than the Patanjali's yoga sutras do and that, and that tradition, right? So each one of these kind of aims at a different place. But what's interesting is that higher power thing, um, even, among, um, even among systems that don't want you to keep it, they still often view it as a very useful thing to have when you're starting out. It's like something sort of aspirational up there, you know, that you can, yeah. uh, that you can use. It's fascinating. It's a great point. And obviously, um, you know, certain practices work for certain people because we're all individual, but also the point that yeah. sometimes we don't like change, but change because we're evolving. So once you re reach a certain level, it's time to move on to the next one. Exactly. I was also thinking about, um, you know, with your, with your, uh, testing or technology that you ask people to practice the method for an hour a day. And we all, well, I would say maybe, maybe some people don't like to dwell in happiness, but most people I'm assuming do, but do you find that even though someone desperately wants to be happy, they don't practice for that hour a day? Yeah. And that's the, one of the benefits of being in a protocol like ours is the, is the accountability. You know, like if you want to get the next thing from us, like you have to have done the last thing, right? Um, and so people talk about one of the most important things in our protocol, not just being the, you know, stuff to do, but the actual structure that basically forces you uh, to do it. I don't know if you know this or not, but we online course completion rates are like at an epic low. They're around like 3%. So like 3% of the courses that are ever purchased online are ever finished. Really? Uh, it's incredibly low. Wow. Right. Uh, and so it's very, very hard to get people to go through a program. And when, what we decided to do with this program a long time ago was to, we really wanted ordinary people all over the world as our data set, not like psych 101 students that are forced to do something for extra credit, which is normally where you get your research subjects <laughs> when you're in a university system, right? It's like, well, you cannot pass my class or you can do, you can participate in Excellent one of these research programs, right? Um, but that's, what does that really tell us? You know, that's caused a huge problem in psychology because now like so much of the psychology literature is based on like 18 to 24 year olds uh, who are like geographically in one spot uh, for that research, right? I mean, it's, they were like in North Michigan. I mean, you know, they're so cute in like the <laughs> publications, the way academics write it up. They're really like a, a university in South Central Michigan. Students from a university, like everybody doesn't know what university that is, right? The professor's there. He's like, it's like it says that, you know, I'm from the University of Michigan, right. you know, Ann Arbor. <laughs> I'm from whatever, right? Right on the masthead of the paper, right? And yet still there's like this, this there's, 
everybody knows it in psychology. There's a huge sample problem, which is why there's also a huge replication problem. So we didn't want to have that issue. And we were like, okay, how do you get people from all over the world um, to participate in a research program like this? So we actually made it into an online class format that people could take anywhere in the world. Um, and that has been really great for us. But then we had that problem like, oh crap, nobody completes online classes. Uh, even I wanna say it was seven years ago or so now, maybe when we first started doing it. Um, and even back then it was like a 15 or 20% completion rate. And so it's way fallen off because there's so many more courses available now and there are so many cheap ones or free ones and people sign up for stuff with thinking, oh, maybe I'll do that someday, you know, and all that. And just so leave really it to the side. I, I have to say I've done that as well. I've done it too. Everybody's done it, right? <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm as guilty as anybody else. <laughs> Um, there's plenty of like machine learning courses at Coursera that I never got to, or you know, quantum chemistry at MIT or, yeah. you know, whatever else, right? It sounded great. Boy, I'll find some time for that, but never did. Uh, and so we really, we really had to structure it in a way that, you know, forced people essentially uh, to go through it so that we could get the before and after data because a, a high dropout rate basically invalidates your study. So we couldn't afford a high dropout rate. Um, and so we, we really had to engineer the thing to sort of force people, you know, drag them through it, if you will, regardless of whether or not they really wanted to meditate an hour a day or not. Um, and that worked out incredibly well. And it ironically wound up being one of the things that like everybody is super grateful for. And people, when it ends, they're like, oh, crap, you know, I, how can I keep that structure? And we're like, well, sorry. <laughs> it's just remarkable what you're doing. And I, so the, the practice, obviously, you've reached some sort of level of happiness or optimum, I hope, um, which you're continually evolving. Is this a practice that one continues for the rest of their life? It is, you know, once you turn, that was another really interesting part of this research is that once you transition into this, it's almost like you get sort of moved off onto a whole other human development track. And that's a bit of a issue in a way, right? Because if you, we don't think about the fact that our entire culture is fundamentally designed to develop us in a certain way as humans, right? That's what it does. So everything our parents ever do, everything that's ever done in school, everything that governments do, jobs do, they're all really very finely tuned to, you know, version one of human psychology and the developmental, the sort of standard developmental cycles that occur in that. And it turns out there's a very different set of those in version two, and nobody really researched that before us. And so we had these people transitioning after the first few hundred people in our experiments had transitioned, we realized that we kind of had a, a little bit of an issue, um, then that we needed to start a separate project to really just look into the developmental stuff to make sure that you know we had the optimum tools to help those people to integrate existing in you know a version one world from a version two space within them um, you know and so that we that has become a whole other separate research project. If there's anybody listening that thinks that they're in uh, what we're calling version two today or what I call fundamental well-being usually. Um, there's a, there's a free little course that we put up at explorerscourse.com. Uh, and that's just a couple of hours of videos. And it basically tells you the absolutely most important thing to know, uh, things to know about your psychology and your sort of, you know, what your developmental cycles look like now and 
uh, whatever else, because we just consider it so, so, so important. One of the things that people often miss, this is kind of amazing, I know. Um, well, everything you're doing is amazing. I'm sorry I have to interject. Everything you're doing <laughs> is amazing. And the other thing for anyone that's listening or watching, all Jeffrey's details will be in the show notes. Cool. Sorry, please go on. <laughs> no, so one of the, um, you know, one of the fascinating things is that if you, if you transition to this, you're what was once a psychological baseline of fear and worry and desire and, you know, sort of stuff like that, um, that basically gets replaced with, with a very deep foundational piece. Now, depending on where you're at, how deep you're in it, all of that, that piece can be in the background. Um, but if, when you look for it, it's always there. You know, you don't, if you look for it and it's not there, you're experiencing temporary versions of this, not persistent versions of this. So you look for it, it's always there. Even in the worst moments of your life, even when your spouse is, you know, uh, walking out the door with the kids and, you know, whatever example I've picked to use today randomly out of the top yeah. of my head. Um, basically, you, you can still stop in that moment, no matter how bad, and you can find that piece. As you go into different types of it, you know, type two, type three, type four, that piece tends to move more forward and it more, just becomes more infused with your, with your everyday moment to moment life. Um, surprisingly, even really, really famous spiritual teachers um, have missed the fact that their life is now guided by what we call the primacy of peace. And so, whereas before it was basically your neuroses that were driving action uh, from that place of worry and anxiety and blah, blah, right? Um, now it's peace that is driving your actions. And you will do almost anything to protect and to enhance this deep sense of peace. Like you don't want it to be in your system, your brain doesn't want it to be in the background, right? It wants it to increasingly come to the foreground. It's like, this is better than any drug. You know, this is better than sex. Like, this is the thing I want. I want yeah. this all the time, right? <laughs> I'm willing to give up I, that job. And when I go to that job and it suppresses that piece and it, you know, clouds it over and it pushes it to the background. Well, I don't need that job. Heck with that job, right? And that's that spouse. I don't need that spouse. And it's suppressing. Oh, my I get it. I get it. So this is a really common thing, right? People don't realize that they've had this fundamental shift and now their life is governed by what we call the primacy of peace uh, instead of kind of the primacy of anxiety and worry and, you know, and neuroses that are built around those and all that. Uh, and so there's lots of fundamental little pieces like that. Right after you transition, there's a two-year developmental cycle that's incredibly important where like key parts of your basically connections in your brain and stuff are kind of unwinding. Uh, for the first year or so. And then they're starting to rewind in a new way in the second year. And that directly relates to your motivation. People can feel like there's a gap in motivation. But what's happening is they were motivated by all of those neuroses, right? And now suddenly, like, you know, the torturous pain that was driving them to work 26 hours a day, uh, you know, on a bed of hot coals, um, you, know, you know, whatever it was, right, that was making them do these things that were just really not pleasant, but they were doing them sort of to feed the neuroses, to reduce the worry, to reduce the anxiety. Somehow it just got programmed into them that those were the things that would do it, right? And so they're, they're just going at it, uh, but it's making them not happy, right? Um, those things it's like they're just turned off with a light switch. 
And those were the things that were motivating the person's life up to that point. It's why they had the job they had. It's why they had the spouse they had. It's why they had this and that or whatever else, right? And now it's it's going to take the it's going to take the brain about a year to sort of unwind all of their psychological conditioning and stuff, um, and to help it to reach a point where it's sort of at more of a neutral spot and then it can start to rebuild those things it's got to rebuild your life from a place of being motivated from peace from the things that really you know infuse peace into your moment-to-moment life and all of the you know this other crazy level of well-being that goes along so they're just fundamental things like that that people need to know that are experiencing this and they often don't pick up on it themselves because one of the things that happens with the transition is there's a quieting of the mind you know, that internal self-referential voice that's constantly like, gee, should I have worn the blue jacket? You know, what, <laughs> if, what if I should have worn the gray jacket? Like, what Is that you what you were thinking before jackets? this interview? You know, I, <laughs> right? I'm so joking. That's gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? um, and so with that self-referential thought going away, introspection is reduced tremendously and people don't pick up on even the most obvious things like the primacy of peace or like the cycle that they're in and why they might be noticing you know a lack of motivation and some for some things and an increase in motivation for other things and so it's very very helpful for people who have just transitioned to this to have even just a couple hours of these videos that basically are like okay here's the landscape because it's presenting it from the outside, it doesn't rely on their internal system that is now sort of shut down, um, you know, to come up with it and figure it out on its own. It's wonderful. And you're providing all this scientific evidence. Um, The transition after effects are also very interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert like you, but I found in general that people's lives actually do change for the better um, externally. Um, things like, well, I've found as well, you know, they, they, have, they have different social circles. They have a job that they enjoy. Um, they might move countries. I'm just, just, I don't know if you, obviously you do too much research and you probably don't have time for this, but um, the after effects are very interesting as well. They are, they really are. And I think, you know, one of the things that we try to let people know is that, um, people can land really, really strongly into this or really gently into this. And if they land, the more they land really strongly into it, the more they're likely to go to leave everything they're doing and become a spiritual teacher and write a book, <laughs> right? First okay. of all. So think about all of the books that you've ever read about this. They're largely written by people who had a really harsh transition to this for the yeah. most part, right? Which makes it all kind of a very biased literature. Uh, but there's a, the, the average person, most people seem to have a more gentle, a transition to this. And so they're not driven to just thoroughly upend their life, you know, or anything like that. There's what happens is the changes in them often get gradually made over time. Now I like to illustrate it sort of like this, you know, you've got kind of, I guess this won't be good for your radio or for your podcast audio uh, listeners, maybe, but I'm holding up sort of one. Someone's going to have to, you're going to have to watch this part, everyone. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to watch this part, I guess. And so if I hold up one hand, it's, it's sort of cupped and held out in, in front of me. Um, this really represents all of our psychological conditioning. And so if you know anything about psychology, there's a school called behaviorism, which just basically says we're a bunch of programmed trial and error experiences. Um, I'm talking to you, you're talking to me, you know, you have no idea why you're sitting like that, 
right? You have no idea why your head is slightly cocked to one side. You oh, no I'm just sorry. Let me just straighten myself <laughs> on your face, right? You have like, I have no idea why I'm doing this with my hands below the camera right now, right? Uh, the, what's happened is our nervous system just conducts zillions of experiments all the time. And it basically creates, if you will, this sort of layer uh, filled of all of that conditioning. Something has made me uh, something makes my system believe that if I'm sort of doing this with my hands, even though it's out of camera, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if I'm doing this with my hands while I'm talking to you right now, you'll be more likely to pay attention to me, right? Or I'll be more effective in getting my point across, right? There's just some sort of unconscious programming in there that's been generated, you know, over all of this time about things like that, right? And so you've got this uh, this layer of conditioning. So you and I are mostly communicating right now with this layer of conditioning. It's largely an unconscious communication back and forth between us. My voice inflection. I mean, I'm not thinking about any of it, you know? Is this it's a learned behavior or is this? It's totally normal. It's a hundred percent normal. It's the way everybody is. Right. Mm -hmm. And then back here, now I've got like just a fist basically behind that for those of you that can't see it. Um, so there's a layer out here with sort of a cupped hand and there's a little fist behind it. We have, the, the sense of self really, which for most people is like the voice in their head and the associated emotions with it and stuff like that. Like people really think that's who I am, right? Mm -hmm. Until you go through an experience where the voice is gone, but you clearly still exist and you're still highly functional. You're, you know, you, you find it very hard to believe that you're not just this voice in your head and the emotions and your beliefs and, you know, sort of all this other thing, right? So the fist sort of represents that traditional sense of self. Well, what happens is there's an interaction. So something comes from out here, right? You start doing this. I'm looking at my teleprompter with your face in it. And, you know, you're, you start just, yeah. well, it's very interesting, Jeffrey, go on. Right? And so there's a stimulus that comes from outside here, right? And it's like, oh my God, I'm boring her, right? And inside I've got this internal process kicking off like, okay, how do I get her attention back? You know, how do I get her interest back? What can go on here? And so that's happening in this conditioning layer, this cupped hand layer, but there's communication coming between that cupped hand layer and that sense of self layer, what feels like you, whatever it is that feels like you right now. And so how this cupped hand layer gets programmed with all of its conditioning and you know the exchange that's happening between you and I largely at an unconscious level and all of that, right? Um, it's intricately tied up with whatever this is with whatever that fist is, right? With whatever this sense of self is. And so this is a really unhappy sense of self. Like the ego right? or the They mind. had a lot of childhood trauma or whatever else, that's embedded up there, right? If this is a super happy sense of self, that's embedded up there as part of the story of that conditioned layer. And so now imagine a situation where you don't just improve this a little bit, right? It doesn't just go from like, depressed to mildly happy or something, mm -hmm. but it's totally transformed. And so now I've opened my fist and turned it upside down to like an open hand, just to represent a totally different sense of self, right? So now it's version two, basically well-being, right? What is still programmed in out here on this cupped hand layer? A lot of this, right? And so it's going to, and when does this get reprogrammed? When stimulus come and hit it, right? So like that stimulus that was reprogrammed a little bit by you yawning and being bored by what I'm saying, not that you're doing that. I'm not, I'm um, not different example, right? Um, you doing that, it's programmed in there. And 
it's going to wait until you're yawn and are bored or somebody else in a similar situation yawns and is bored or whatever for that stimulus to hit here again. Now, when that stimulus hits here again, it's going to go through a rejiggling process. It's going to say, okay, let's do what we did last time and see if we get that person's interest back. Well, didn't get their interest back. Let's change that up a little bit and see if we can get it even better. Oh, great. Got their interest back. Lock that in to the conditioning layer as what we're going to do next time. Right now, now though, right. Instead of our old sense of self being part of that looped in programming, our new sense of self is part of that looped in programming. And so it takes stimuli coming and they can be internal stimuli too. They can be like mm -hmm. memories that come up and, you know, stuff like that. I'm just simplifying this with outside yeah. stuff. Um, and so it takes the stimuli arising in order for that layer to kind of rejiggle. And so it can take some time for this to reprogram even after there is this change here. What happens for people who have a really dramatic change in this is that this happens and it really sort of jiggles this. It jiggles a lot of stuff here and produces a lot of change just in the way that if you're driving along in a war zone and your Jeep blows up and you wind up with terrible PTSD does the same thing, right? There's been a big, that makes it a big change here, right? And there's a lot of jiggling that happens there. And like suddenly this whole new pattern called PTSD is locked in. Okay. And if you know anything about PTSD, it's almost impossible to get rid of. Uh, and so, you know, there, these things can happen. These, these very significant events can happen in the brain that really just reorganize things at a larger scale and really lock in and hard and tight. And they can be very positive things and very negative things. And so they can, they can happen from drug experiences. You know, you're into near-death stuff, so you know they happen all the time yeah. from near-death experiences, as an example. Uh, and so there's plenty of you know, examples of this type of stuff. And so you can imagine if it takes a while to reprogram, if it takes a while for stimuli to come in, it takes a while for this layer to reprogram in communication with the change in sense of self. And so people that transition to fundamental well-being tend to not have those extreme transitions. Those are actually very rare. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to have much more gentle transitions and then they tend to have a slope after their transition where their personality does change, but it changes over time. They're, you know, the changes they make in their life, they don't immediately be like, okay, I'm leaving everything behind, putting on some white robes, writing a spiritual teacher book and I'm hitting the circuit. Um, you know, they it's a keep, slow they progression their job and all that, right? So that's the sorry. Thank you for explaining that very in very simple layman's terms. <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, I've asked all the questions. Is there something you'd like to speak to the Passion Harvest audience about? No, I think you know we've, we've done a great job. You've really hit all the highlights here. So, oh well, I think I've job. got the easy job. I mean, look, I could go on for hours, but I, <laughs> this has been an hour, and it's just been such a wonderful insight into a like an elementary discussion about how to get happy. And um, Dr. Jeffrey Martin, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. All your links for anyone that's listening or watching will be in the show notes for people to connect with you directly. It's been really insightful and I've got a lot of food for thought that's for sure thank you so much it's been a real honor thanks for having me thank you so much bye Jeffrey that is the end of our passionate episode thank you so much for listening and please subscribe leave a review tell your friends and spread the passion as always every day may you be more and more passionate <laughs>